I'm Rob Hopkins, and this is Imagination Taking Power, a podcast where I share with you conversations, insights, and aha moments on my journey towards writing a book about imagination. David Sachs is a journalist living in Toronto, and he is the author of the book The Revenge of Analog, Real Things and Why They Matter. I found David's book fascinating, with its suggestion that the current revival of books, vinyl, photographers using real film, physical notebooks, all speak to something deeper that is happening in the world around us. How, I wondered, does analogue interact with our imaginations in a way that digital can't? Do real, tangible, actual things provide more for our imagination to connect to, to be sparked to, to colonise? As David went on to tell me, Technology should serve your imagination. Your imagination should not serve technology. So here is our conversation. The day before we spoke, David's house had been hit by a falling tree during a storm, which allowed a lot of rainwater into the house. So as you listen to the podcast of our conversation, you'll hear builders in the background and several distractions as various professionals wander through the room behind him. I started by asking David to give us a condensed taste of the revenge of analogue. What did he see happening in the world that he felt he needed to document? Through the advance of digital technology over the past three decades, we've seen the process of what's commonly called disruption um, or sort of, you know, technological obsolescence uh, progressing along more rapidly each year as the technology becomes better and is more adapted. And right around sort of the beginning of what I would call the pinnacle of this, which is, you know, the the time about a decade ago when the smartphone came out, when the iPhone came out, when cloud computing became, you know, inexpensive and widely available, when, you know, broadband and um, internet penetration was everywhere. Essentially when when you know the the personal computer became a handheld device that you could carry anywhere and connect you anywhere in the world and could suddenly you know become so much more powerful than it had ever been in our personal lives and professional lives there was this assumption that the analog things that had been you know struggling against this technology would all of a sudden now completely disappear right books would disappear paper writing would disappear um uh you know physical music like records and cds that i see behind you would disappear everything up behind you would just be rubbish and worthless um as well as you know face-to-face meetings and people going to offices the technology would liberate us to do all these things so much easier and quicker and better than the analog equivalent um would do and it would become worthless and initially that did sort of happen. But what the Revenge of Analog actually documents and what I started seeing was that very shortly after that, those analog technologies started growing again in new and different ways because they acquired a new value. It wasn't the sort of default value of a legacy technology. It was almost as though they were a, a new technology that compared with the ubiquity of, of digital technology um, did something different and in many cases superior or complementary. So uh, you wrote in the book that uh, ultimately analog, if I can read my handwriting, pursuits connect us to one another in a vastly deeper way than any technology can. They allow bonds to form in real time and in physical spaces which transcend language and our ability to communicate with just words and symbols. I wonder what your what your sense is of, of how, how our imagination 
works in each of those different spaces in a digital <clears> space or in an analog space what does our and, and our in particular kind of our ability to to imagine the future to feel kind of hopeful and and, and imaginative in, in that sense How interesting does that operate um, in both spaces well certainly i mean i, I read and, and there's well-documented research on things like drawing and handwriting um you know the the creative tools afforded by digital technology are tremendous um uh, but software is limiting in its limitlessness. And I think that was one of the interesting things I found when talking with designers or people who shoot, you know, film is that, you know, sometimes having all the creative options and tools that are at our hands, um, narrows down our, our imagination, right? Um, uh, you know, software has very clearly defined rules and you have to work within them and, and adhering to those rules can sort of stunt the creative imaginative process. Um, uh, and having so much information available easily at our fingertips, again, can, you know, takes the burden off the imagination to actually do some of the hard, heavy lifting work. Um, I think that, you know, most designers and most artists will say that, you know, you know, you need friction to have a spark of creativity. You need, um, you need challenges to overcome that, you know, constrain a creative process, right? As a writer, you need deadlines, you know, having a limitless deadline is the worst possible thing you can have. Um, uh, you need to work sort of within the constraints and, and, you know, analog provides sort of a very natural constraint to it, uh, that digital doesn't, right? It's, it's like, well, you can do anything on PowerPoint, you know, or not PowerPoint, but like Photoshop. Well, it's like, you have all these options, you can do limitless stuff. And, and sometimes that limitlessness, you know, stunts the creative process. It gets things carried away or it just creates bad art. It's kind of like, well, why use your imagination to create something that, you know, through the process of chemistry with a photograph and you can just use all these filters, use whatever filter you want. And it's like, well, that actually takes the burden of the imagination away. Um, you know, when you think about the most basic level, a child and a box of crayons and a piece of paper, they're limited in what they can put on the page, but within that they're unlimited and they're, and they're, you know, they're only constrained by the laws of physics and even then they'll, they'll try to usurp it. Right. Um, but give them a painting program on an iPad. And again, it's, it's, you only can do what the software does. So it, it's, you know, it takes away, it takes the burden of that imagination away. Um, and so I think that's, that is, you know, that sort of like, physical cognitive part of it and there's also studies that show you know people are more creative with these papers and blah 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 but i think um i think another part of it that bigger part that you're talking about is the notion of again the world that we're creating right and i think a lot of the rhetoric um and the sort of hopeful utopianism of of silicon valley and the computer world which goes back to you know the counterculture of the 1960s in, in the bay area and, and the emergence of the early internet is like look at this tremendous interconnected wonderful world we can create and wow look at all the things we can do this is going to be utopia people of the world will come together and and it is it was this imagination but the reality of it and the economics of it and the structure of it is actually one that's you know narrows the imagination down because it requires a standardized technology that's often controlled by you know a handful of companies or protocols and so 
you know, it, it in many ways limits that creativity and limits that collective imagination. And I think in the past year, post-Trump, post-Brexit, post, um, you know, crises of Cambridge Analytica and Facebook and, um, and data breaches and all these sorts of things, we, we've actually seen that the, the real limits of that in the, in the public imagination. Um, and, and I think a, a reappreciation of, you know, the capacity for the imagination of what we can do in the real world, which is, you know, actually still requires that tough work of going out and meeting people and doing the things that are risk. I think it, it offered the promise of digital technology, offered the promise of like risk free, um, you know, you know, tap, tap your fingers, world changing. And, you know, the, the reality is still that, that hard face to face thing that makes the real difference. So what, what is it that was missing? That is the hole that analog fills for people. Do you think what, what, what was, what felt like it was <clears throat> slipping out of our fingers that analog has enabled us mm -hmm. to, to regain? I think it's, it's two things, right? Um, one is, you know, the joy and, and the kind of utility we have in things, the physical things we can touch, right? We, we, at the end of the day, we're still physical flesh and bread creatures that, you know, experience the world through our five senses. And, you know, we condense, you know, those five senses into really two or three, right? Like two and a half, let's say like the sight through a narrow square or rectangle sound through you know, shitty speakers, um, and like the basics of touch, right? Like that, you know, just the tips of your fingers. Um, and you know, no, no smell, no, no, no taste, obviously. Um, and I think so it's, it is that it is all the, that using the full sensory capabilities of, of the human organism is, is what we were missing. And that's for, that is for, you know, that can be productivity, right? That can be someone, you know, the difference between someone who has learned how to build something through uh, watching videos and actually someone who has the the inherent knowledge of that through their hands, right, the, of, of a, a woodworker or a craftsman or just cooking. Um, uh, uh, but also, I think that, you know, that the, the pleasure that we get from these things, the pleasure that you get from uh, all those records behind you and CDs behind you and books behind you. Um, that's actually something that we craved. And as soon as we took that away, it was like, wow, this is great. I can have it all just sitting in the cloud. And I don't need all these things. It's like, oh, shit, I really miss those things. Right. We define ourselves by those things. And, and, and part of that's that imagination, the imagination of building the world where the taste we have you know, can sit behind us and fill us with a sense of warmth, even though you probably haven't touched half of those CDs in like a decade. Um, but it, it gives you something to know it's there. And I think so. It, so it's the pleasure and thing, the utility of those things, you know, tangible, physical things and physical sort of tangible experiences, not just things we buy, but things outside of the house and whatever. But I think, um, more than equally important part, I, I think the sort of the, the, the really like, you know, the, the gravity of it is, is the pleasure and, and the necessity of, of people. And that's face to face social interaction, which the analog world sort of forces you into. You have to go to a record store to buy records. You have to, you know, 
you know, it, it's it's very hard. I mean, you can do it as a solitary existence. You can order all your books from Amazon and all your records from Discogs and just sit in your house and never leave in anyone. But it is the it is those gatherings and those meetings and that face to face thing that actually is what affects real imagination and sparks it on. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, from someone who writes and, and speaks and does this stuff, we could have conversations like this face to face on Skype. But like, this is a bullshit conversation. I mean, not not actually. I'm just saying this is not a real conversation, right? Like we we are getting you know 20 percent of what we got if I flew to the UK and we sat and spent a day together and walked around the town and you showed me things and we went to the pub and you were you know telling me the story about it. Like that's why you and I fly different places to interview people and speak. That's you know, I, I, people are always like, well, oh, you just do your book from home and interview people by Skype. I'm like, I do a lot of that. But like every part of the book, every of every book I do, I'm going somewhere. Like I was in New Orleans last week, you know, and I was interviewing African-American women who were in the hair and beauty business because it's about entrepreneurship and community in a, in a, you know, in its own special way. Right. And it's like I had to go there. I had to like meet with these women. I had to sit in their salons and talk to the customers and smell the shampoo and, and hear it because that's that full thing um in a way that i could have called all of them and had conversations with them but it wouldn't have been the same and i think that is you know the essence of like you can't be in this world without being in this world and digital provides that convenience of long distance conversations of, you know, connections to people, you know, mediated through social media or, or email or other technology, but it's only giving you a slice. And if you're only using a slice of the information, you're only, your imagination is, is again, like only able to use that, that slice of what it has because the imagination feeds off interactions and things, which is why you can, which is why people go to conferences, right? It's like, what, every conference I speak at, and I speak at a conference, I don't know, every three weeks, like, what is the point of this? Well, the point of it is not to hear some schmuck like me standing up on a stage and, and talking for an hour. It should be. Um, it, it, the point of it is, like, people to sit together, and then after that, it's like, man, that was, what, what do you think about that? Okay, let's go have a drink. Let's have these interactions to spark something. So you get some idea going, you get a conversation going. Conversations, real conversations, which don't happen over digital, as we've seen. You is that a rant? Is that a good enough rant? No, that was great. Yeah, thank you. The you mentioned about Cambridge Analytica, and yeah. it's, it's been really, you know, reading a lot of the stuff, the research that's coming out now. If we look at the, the internet as a sort of twenty-year kind of experiment, you know, social media and yeah. so on and so forth. You know, more and more articles now of people who are just saying, uh, uh, you know, this thing can it be saved? Has it become? a net negative uh, on society, you know, is it, it, so the Cambridge Analytica stuff and the, all the stuff about the more time you spend on Facebook, the more depressed people become, and so on and so on and so on, uh, and, the, and the catastrophic effects on our attention spans and our ability to focus on anything. Do you, do you feel like analog is something that would just sort of sit alongside digital that will always be there? Do you, do you feel that digital is something that we will discover a new way of relating to where it has a bit of a more of a is a bit more humble in its aspirations? Or do you see that actually in the analog stuff that actually represents the future direction that we might be going to a sort of a new 
a new society, a new more analog way of doing things? I think it's it's a balance in a conversation and one that we're constantly having, whatever the technology is that's in our lives, right? Whether it's electricity or, you know, industrial steam power or paper. Um, I think if you look at the history of technology, these conversations of how the technology influences are always going to be, um, you know, a, a push and pull. And I think it's very individual for certain people. There's lots of people who are like, I have no problem. Social media is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. And, you know, it's, it's, it's what life's about. Like, look at all that's done for us. And, and, and those people genuinely believe it. they're not just, um, you know, getting them some propaganda. It actually has some great benefits. And of course there's going to be, you know, your Luddites, um, uh, which probably that village is probably close to you. Um, oh no, it was in the north, right? Yeah, I don't think it was actual place. I think it was named oh. after someone who was called Mr. Ludd. Mr. Ludd, but was it a close to? It was in northern. Right in the north, anyway. it was in the industrial okay, revolution. Right, textile. Yeah, yeah, probably near Manchester. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, you know, who were like rejecting it? And I think most of us, it is a question of that personal values. Um, but I think, you know. People say, well, is this this thing you wrote about, like, this is just, is this just a trend that's going to go away, like pet rocks or disco? Um, and I said, no, look, as long as we are physical beings walking, you know, on a spinning planet, we're always going to relate to the world more deeply through those, the things we can touch and feel. Um, and digital can bring us those things. It can help us find the board game cafe it can help us finance things through kickstarter or whatever it can put us into touch with other people and, and and allow us to meet up um so i think you know what i've found by talking to people and 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 you know the response from the book is like it is that balance that people seek and i think that balance is important because the other the other sort of option and and the one that that i think the you know digital technology you know, through these integrated services of like, oh, you can get everything on your Amazon devices or everything on your Apple devices is a more binary one, which is like digital or analog, one or two, you know, one or zero, Apple or Samsung. Like that's the language of digital is, is, is either or. And the reality of the world is not. The world is not binary. It is fluid and, um, you know, complicated and, and many different shades of, of options. And that is... You know, that's imagination, right? It, it's dealing with, it's never of like, well, what do you want? You know, A or B. It's like, no, I want to create C. Um, uh, I, I don't want these sort of stark examples. And, and so I think that is what, you know, people are increasingly moving for, whether it's individuals and their personal lives. Well, where does this actually benefit? Where does this technology benefit me, analog technology, and where's the digital one? Where do I want to pick up the paper version of the physical thing? Where do I not care? And I'm just happy to have, you know, the, the digital one. Where does that work for me? And I think even in companies, organizations, um, you know, the work life of like, well, here's where this works for me, and here's where this, um, you know, doesn't. And, and I think that is increasingly what you're seeing is finding that mix. Um, and, and that's what we want. You know, analog password is analog technology is not going to go um, away, nor is nor is digital. Uh, and, and I think it's it's you know reflecting that balance is going to be um, probably the, hopefully the future that, that we'll all have. But I don't see it as being that stark either or. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I I interviewed um, Douglas Rushkoff a little while ago, and oh, yeah. he said uh, he said. 
we've ended up over the last 20 years disabling the cognitive and collaborative skills we would have needed to address uh, a problem like climate change, which I thought was really fascinating. And I wonder what your sense is for people who are trying to do activism at a time when people's attention spans are completely shot to pieces. What does uh, what does analog offer to people who are who are trying to engage people around ideas for, for when when they're trying to inspire and in, interact with people who who are, are really struggle to focus on anything? Um, as I struggle to focus with workers screaming um, in my around my house as they rip it apart. Oh God! Um, uh, what analog does is it it slows down the pace of the conversation. Right, a a conversation between people, whether it's one person speaking to a room of people or two people sitting across from each other, um, or talking on a phone, or you know, look, even in this context, but even even this context, like I can see your, you know, I can look at other things that are popping up on my computer screen and other sounds are pinging, and I'm just trying to concentrate. It it does it does mediate that process, um, and it and it mediates it into the pace of the real world hour to hour, minute by minute, 24 hours in a day, right? Seven days in a week. Digital, you know, often accelerates the pace of that thing. Sometimes that can be beneficial, right? If you look at the, you know, sexual assault and, and, and um, you know, anti-misogyny, the Me Too movement, or any of these sort of hashtag social movements that are actually had positive growth and change over the past while, um, uh, you can see that actually the accelerating pace of that change is, is you know, can be can be beneficial, but on the opposite hand, it can be just as harmful of something negative, right? Racism, um, you know, intolerance can spread just as quickly um, with just as devastating real-world consequences. So I think it's it is the pace of analog conversations, the pace of reading a book versus reading endless blogs and tweets. Um, the not only the pace of that, but that pace requires a depth, a slowing down of thought. A consideration of um, reactions um, and the social cues that come with it, right? If I read something that you write in a tweet and I can just write back, I'm like, you fucking cut, you're wrong, you know? Because I don't know you, I don't see your face, you're not anyone I know, but if I say that, I can't say that if I disagree with you and I'm sitting in front of you. I have to consider, you know, those real sort of human things. Um, uh, and, and that, of course, allows for that deeper, those deeper ideas and those deeper ideas for better solutions. Um, uh, you know, it's there's this wonderful idea of like, oh, let's create a hashtag, let's create a website, let's do a thing, like let's create a social movement out of something. But it's like, well, what is what's going to be that real long term human consequence you're trying to achieve? You can only really achieve those things through long term human interactions and consequences. Um, and, and I think that's you know, that's that long-term benefit to One of the questions I've asked everybody that I've spoken to is, tweaked obviously for the person, is if, if you had been elected as the Prime Minister of Canada on a Make Canada Imaginative Again platform where you, you recognised that there was a need to really value and enhance imagination across education, across the political world, across social interactions, across policy making, whatever. Uh, what might you do in your first hundred days in office? 
you know, I think one of the key things is is starting with education and, and the idea of imagination, because I think in there is this tremendous talk given to education, innovation, entrepreneurship, um, imagination, creativity, right? These are like what are known as 21st century skills, and it's all sort of a buzz. But often that, that gets equated with technology. It's like, we need more innovation and education, you know, an imagination classroom. So let's give all the kids an iPad. And the reality is what's sort of proven, what do we see and what's known is, you know, sometimes the best, sometimes the best and most innovative examples are the simplest ones. Sometimes putting a bunch of people in a room with a whiteboard and a couple of markers is a lot better than giving them the best virtual reality sort of headsets. And I think it's really like looking at the data, actually stripping back what feeds information, what innovation and um, imagination, what makes it work. And, and, you know, those basic values of creativity. It's not about teaching kids to code. It's about, you know, making sure that there's art classes and theater classes and music classes that teach kids how to play instruments and do real plays in real life um, and make movies and, and make music. But uh, again, to, you know, the, the, you know, when, when you're stripping school libraries of funding and public libraries of funding, um, you know, when you're saying, well, we don't need books, um, uh, we don't need, um, you know, you know, paint and all this, we can do it all with iPads. Like it's all about giving kids computer skills because those are the skills. Like you know, children, like you want to build a society that's more imaginative you know, have the youngest children making sure that they're able to have their schools, have libraries, amazing public libraries and communities that have all sorts of things that where you can take computer classes and you can work on 3D printers, but you also have books and games and color and these sorts of things. Um, so those, those are the questions I had, but I just wondered if, if, there were, if you had any last thoughts about imagination that might have triggered off other things we've talked about that I haven't asked you the right question to elicit. Um, Imagination is is something we all have, right? But it, it is it is a skill that needs to be cultivated, and you can't you can't just cultivate it in one way. And I think that is true to approaches to education as it is true to technology, right? Um, you know, digital technology, computers, devices, apps, robots, whatever. Right, has the ability to inspire the imagination uh, to be used as tools to um, to you know take the ideas that the imagination creates into reality. Um, uh, it can fuel the imagination, connect people who are imaginative. It can do all sorts of things to benefit um, uh, the imagination and 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 you know allow it to work. But um, it's not the only tool. And uh, the analog world and the technologies of analog um, uh, and, and, and the analog interactions we have with things and with people um, can also uh, engage the imagination in a way that is different. And I think that's the key, right? It's not that it's superior to digital. It's just different. And in some cases, that'll work better. In some cases, it won't. Um, uh, and, and so, um, so I think that's something that needs to keep in mind. I think that's something that everybody, whether it's an individual or an organization needs to assess on a real level. Like, is this, is this done? Do it, does this, does this 
does this benefit my imagination if I'm doing it in an analog way or digital way? Let me try both and see what works, right? And I think for everybody, it's different. I think for me, you know, when I'm writing my books, I want to meet people face-to-face. I want to take notes on a notepad. Um, uh, but then I want to sit back home and type it out on Microsoft Word because I just type faster and it works better and I'm used to it. And I'm not going to write out a book longhand or type it on a typewriter. That just works for me. For other people, it's the opposite, right? And so I think, I think again, it's it's not having that preconceived notion of one's better or one's worth. It's it's approaching them in an equal sort of way, and then using that to to serve your imagination as best possible, right? Technology should serve your imagination. Your imagination should not serve technology. 